Thank you for the prayer and a huge thanks as well to our worship team that puts in so much effort during the week to prepare for a service like this. I also want to say how wonderful it is to see the children of our church feeling so at home in the church. Isn't that lovely? Thank you, Lord. So this morning I'm preaching on this verse, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Here it is. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. I'm sure you all are familiar with this verse because it's a very Christmassy verse, isn't it? It's the kind of verse that gets read at a carol service or will be on a Christmas card. And we know that this verse does actually speak about the birth of Jesus because Matthew in his gospel, when he's explaining and laying it out for the Jews to whom he is writing in his gospel, he says this, Matthew 1.18, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. You know the Christmas story. Um, Joseph wants to now divorce Mary to bring an end to this betrothal. The Lord says to him, no, don't do that, Joseph, because the baby is actually from the Holy Spirit. And then we read these important words, Matthew 1 verse 22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And Matthew uses this quotation from Isaiah 7 verse 14 to show that Jesus was born of a virgin and to show the miraculousness of Jesus' birth. And we know that that's his agenda as he quotes that verse because in verse 25 he says, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Friends, this is a very challenging passage to understand. And one of the reasons I'm preaching this message today is that we're going to delve into the field of hermeneutics, which is the whole study of how literature should be interpreted. And what's very interesting is that here in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23, it's as though Matthew just randomly plucks a verse out of the Old Testament and he applies it to Mary and Joseph and uses it as evidence to show that Jesus was born to a virgin. A virgin. And so today we're going to be looking at the original context, where these verses come from. Do you know that there are 350 allusions to Jesus in the Old Testament? Not illusions, <laughs> allusions, kind of like 
little hints, cryptic clues, little hidden messages in the Bible that are really speaking about Jesus. There are 350 of these allusions, maybe more. Some of them are very obvious. Jolene preached on this verse a Sunday or two ago. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. This too is a prophecy of Isaiah, and it's very clear it's about Jesus. In fact, Jolene preached from Isaiah 42. I'm, I'm muddling myself up. Roland's going to preach tonight on Isaiah 9. Isaiah 42, it's about the servant of the Lord who won't even snuff out a smoldering wick, a clear reference to Jesus. Isaiah 53, a wonderful prophetic description of the, the crucifixion of Jesus and his life. So there are these references to Jesus throughout the Bible. And this is the reference we're looking at today, Isaiah 7.14. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, if we dial back in the Bible, flick back in the pages, all the way to the book of Isaiah, the date is 735 B.C. That's a long time ago, before any of you were born. And the setting is, is Israel. Isaiah is operating down here in Judah, and there's the, 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 the Syro-Ephraimitic war going on. We've got Syria, Assyria, Damascus, and Israel and Judah are separated into two factions. And this is the context for Isaiah 7, verse 14. Bear with me, it'll get a little technical, but I believe it'll be worth worth the ride. Here we go. This is what's happening. This is the context to Isaiah 7 verse 14. When Ahaz's son Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezan of Aram, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. By the way, don't you think this is incredibly sad <laughs> that Israel and Judah are at war against each other? These are God's people, and they're at war. Israel consisted of the ten northern tribes, and Judah was kind of the one main tribe down south with Jerusalem as its capital. And, and the guys in Israel up north have teamed up with King Rezin, and they're, they're coming to fight against Israel, they're coming to fight against Jerusalem. And this is why Isaiah comes to King Ahaz to, to bring God's word to him. Now, the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom, because Ephraim was the dominant tribe. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. This is a way of saying they're profoundly disturbed by this, that Israel's ganging up with, with Aram, and, and it looks like they might attack. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, go, go out and you and your son 
Sheer Jeshub to meet King Ahaz down by the aqueduct. And they have this little get-together. And King Ahaz says, sorry, Isaiah says to King Ahaz, be careful, keep calm, chill out, don't be afraid, don't lose heart because of these two smoldering pieces of firewood. That's a derogatory way of referring to resin and pecker. Isaiah says to King Ahaz, don't let these two people, these nobodies, hassle you. Sure, they're plotting your ruin and saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it among ourselves, and we'll make this guy king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. Syria and Ephraim are trying to get King Ahaz to, to join in an, an alliance with them against Assyria. And the prophet comes and says, don't worry about these guys. This is the context. And there's some other lovely stuff that gets said here, including in verse 9, if you don't stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And I think that's a message for us as Christians today. If you're not going to stand firm in your faith and be uncompromising, you won't stand at all. That's one of the things Isaiah tells King Ahaz. But Isaiah can see that he's not really getting through to King Ahaz. Because remember, he's shaking like a tree in the wind. He's a scaredy cat. So Isaiah says, ask the Lord your God for a sign. Something in the deepest depths or maybe in the highest heights. Ask God for a sign. King Ahaz is a good Baptist. He says, I will not ask for a sign. I will not put the Lord to the test. Isaiah says, that doesn't matter. God's going to give you a sign anyway. Verse 13, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough that you're testing the patience of men? Will you try the patience of God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. Well, how many of you saw that one coming? Hey? So now you know where Isaiah 7 verse 14 fits into the Bible. It is a conversation between Isaiah the prophet and Ahaz the king of Jerusalem. And Ahaz is saying, don't worry about these guys that are coming to attack you. Don't worry about these guys that are coming to take over your kingdom. It ain't going to happen. And to help you in your weak faith, I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign is that the virgin, we're not entirely sure who that is in this context, will be with child and will give birth to a son. And that will be a sign to you that God is with us, that God is with us. 
we always need to ask ourselves, what does a passage mean in its original context? What good would a reference to the virgin birth of Jesus, which was going to happen 731 years down the line, be to King Ahaz? No help at all. The sign that the Lord said, I'm going to give you, even though you don't want a sign, was something that happened right there and then in that context to strengthen the faith of Ahaz. And if you read on in the story, and I hope you do read on in the story, we're told that a child is born. And more is said about the child, and it's part of the prophetic word. The, the prophetic word is that because of the abundance of milk they give, he will eat curds and honey. And you might think, well, what's prophetic about eating curds and honey? And to us, it's nothing, because you could probably get them both at pick and pay. But for them, eating curds and honey meant there was prosperity in the land. It meant that they weren't defeated. And so there's this whole description about this child who would be born that would be a sign to the people that God was with them and the child would eat curds and honey because there would be prosperity in the land. And then as Isaiah, well, I nearly said as Isaiah unpacks chapter 8, but of course he didn't know it was chapter 8. He was just having a conversation. Then Isaiah says, I went to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Are you connecting the dots? And the Lord said to me, name him Maher Shalal Hashbaz, also known as Emmanuel. And then there's some more lovely prophetic stuff about not worrying about conspiracy theories, which is also quite important for us today. There's some more stuff. And then in verse 18 of chapter 8, Isaiah says, Here I am, and the children the Lord has given me, we are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty. So we're not exactly sure who this young woman of marriageable age was. It could be Isaiah's second wife because he already had a child. Isaiah, we know, had three children. The second one could be the one that was the sign, and that is his name. So that is the sign of Emmanuel. So what do we do about the fact that when Matthew writes the gospel, he says all this about Jesus and Joseph and Mary, it all took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. How can Matthew just pluck a verse out of Isaiah 7 that has a very specific meaning in that context and just say, ta-ta-ta, this applies to Jesus? 
So can the biblical authors do that because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, but we can't? Is that how it works? No, I think that is how it works. <laughs> we can't just go to various places in the Old Testament and say, well, you see this verse here that meant that then? Well, I'm going to give it a new meaning today. By the way, I don't have all the answers, eh? I'm just trying to shed light on a problem. So we do know from the New Testament, which is inspired of the Holy Spirit, and Matthew's not making a mistake here, there is a prophetic clue in Isaiah 7 verse 14 that does reveal to us some wonderful things about the birth of our Messiah. Do you know that Jesus can be seen in every single book of the Old Testament? Every single book of the Old Testament talks about Jesus. And this is why we need the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit when we read the Bible. Because some of the beautiful things that the Old Testament has to say about Jesus are really well hidden. <laughs> That's why Jesus often when he spoke would say, let him who has ears to hear, hear. Let, let he or she who has eyes to see, see. Because sometimes what you're looking at is not all there is to see. I want to take you back to the Emmaus Road, the afternoon after Jesus' resurrection. And they're walking on the Emmaus Road, and two of the disciples join up, or Jesus joins them, and they're all disheartened because they don't know Jesus has been resurrected. And they're having a chat there. And they don't recognize it's Jesus. And we read there, in verse 27 of Luke 24, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And I've mentioned this before. When Jesus is trying to prove that he's back, that he's been resurrected, he doesn't go, ta-da, here I am. He starts with the book of Moses, all five of them, and then moves on through the prophets and shows from God's word how all these scriptures speak about him. Here's another very cryptic reference. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that the people in the wilderness, they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. We think, gee, there was just like a rock, Moses whacked it, and water came out. Well, there was more than a rock. That was the presence of Jesus right there with God's people that accompanied them. There's a crazy reference. I wonder if I should even mention it. It's about how pastors should earn these good salaries. And, and in 1 Corinthians, oh, that's a joke, by the way. But in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, Paul writes about how you mustn't muzzle the ox when it's 
when it's grinding out the corn. In other words, back in the day in Deuteronomy chapter 25, if you put an ox to walk around a millstone and to push it grinding the corn, you need to let that thing eat. Keep it happy as it's working. And Paul quotes this verse from, from Deuteronomy 25, and he says, in the same way the Lord has commanded those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And I love what he says here. He says, is it about oxen that God is concerned? And the truth of the matter is, yes, it was about oxen that God is concerned. <laughs> That's why there is that instruction in Deuteronomy. Look after your animals. God is concerned about the animals. But there's another meaning if you have the eyes to see it. And that is that we need to support and care for those who are preaching the gospel for a living. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. He says, I've come to fulfill them. All that the law and the prophets spoke about. They were speaking about me. Do you know that there are just so many references to Jesus in the Old Testament? In Genesis 3, when the curse is pronounced on the snake, Satan is told that the seed of the woman will crush your head. It's a reference to Jesus, the seed of the woman. Huh? The seed, singular, of Abraham is going to be a blessing to the whole world. That's Jesus. Jesus is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is seen in the ram with its head with thorns around it as the substitutory sacrifice that sets Isaac free. Jesus is seen in the bronze serpent wrapped around a stake in Numbers 22. That's a picture of Jesus. Jesus is seen in the Passover lamb that had to be spotless. He's seen in the scapegoat, that poor goat that, that symbolically had the sins of Israel put on its head. And then they'd boot that goat out into the wilderness. And then everyone would feel they were forgiven. It was the scapegoat. It's a picture of Jesus. He's the scapegoat. All that happened on the Day of Atonement, the sprinkling of blood on the mercy seat. It's a picture of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. He is, he is like Joseph in so many ways. We can see Jesus in Joseph. He's the suffering servant. He's Ruth's kinsman redeemer. He's the Davidic shepherd king. He's the wisdom of the Proverbs. He's manna from heaven, the bread of life. Jesus is like the tabernacle that accompanied the people in the wilderness, which is why John said in John 1.14, he came and tabernacled among us. Jesus is seen in the festivals of the Lord. How many of you have played this wonderful game? All of you, I'm sure, where's Wally? It's a childhood favorite. For, those, for the one or two of you here that never played, 
You've got to find this guy, Wally, here, who's hidden. He's usually somewhere in the crowd. But as Christians, we don't have to play where's Wally when you get to our age. It's where's Jesus as you read the Bible. (laughs) That's much more fun. Can you see him in Genesis 3? Can you see him in Genesis 5? Can you see him in Genesis 11? Can you see him in Numbers 22? Can you see him in Psalm 22? Can you see him in Psalm 1? All of the scriptures speak in some way about Jesus. There's something else that's worth noting here about Isaiah 7 verse 14. In the Hebrew language, the word for virgin is the word alma. It really just means, kind of generally speaking, a a young woman who's not yet married. There would have been thousands of them around. But when the people translated the Old Testament scriptures into Greek in what we've come to call the Septuagint, and many of the, the Jews stopped speaking Hebrew because their culture, Greek culture, took over. So they needed the scriptures in Greek. This is before the time of Christ. So the main translation of the Bible, the Septuagint, they had a, number, a choice of how they were going to translate this word Alma. They could have used a normal word for young woman, Neanias. But instead they used the more technical term, Parthenos, which very much has a much stronger connotation of a virgin, virgin, if you know what I mean. And so even in the providential translation of the Old Testament scriptures, God guided the people who translated that to use the word Parthenos for Alma. And so when Matthew says what he says, they had this as background as well. But all of the Old Testament speaks about Jesus, but some of it is clouded in mystery. Remember what got said on the Emmaus Road, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. And after Jesus left them and they enjoyed a meal, they said, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? And today we need the Holy Spirit to open the scriptures to us. It reminds me of those funny pictures, you know, the ones with all those, not very good at description here, but the squiggly stuff and little triangles, but you stare at it on the page, and if you stare long enough and squint your eyes, eventually the dolphin pops out or the boat. That's a little bit of a picture of what it's like to study the Bible. When you just look, you just see shapes and funny things, but as you gaze and as the Holy Spirit enlightens you, sometimes you see more. And so even though Isaiah the prophet was speaking to Ahaz about an actual young woman who was going to have a baby called Mal, also known as Emmanuel, 
the Holy Spirit revealed that actually there's much, much more. That one day a virgin virgin would be with child. And they would call him Emmanuel, even though his real name would be Jesus. And then later on, Jesus says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So according to Jesus, there's a hang of a lot written about him in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. So next time you're having your quiet time, remember where's Wally, and be asking yourself, where's Jesus right here? One final scripture and I'm done. Remember Paul when he's on trial. He stands before King Agrippa, and King Agrippa says, Paul, all your studying has driven you crazy. And his reply is, middle of the page underlined, I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. Just because you can't see it, King Agrippa, doesn't mean it's not there. I'm on trial today for preaching the gospel, but I'm just saying everything that the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people, to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. What I am saying is true and reasonable. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for instruction, for correcting, for rebuking, for training us in righteousness. Lord, help us to love your Word, to study your Word, to meditate on your Word, and help us to see Jesus in your Word. Even in books like Leviticus and Haggai and Amos and Obadiah and Jeremiah, open our eyes, Lord, to see the fullness of your word. I'm reminded that Jesus often spoke to people in parables. And afterwards, the disciples would complain and say, Jesus, why, why do you speak in parables? Why didn't you just speak it plainly? Then everyone would know what you're trying to say. And Jesus said, like, the secret things of the kingdom are for those that seek them out. Let those who have ears to hear, hear. Let those who have eyes to see, see. 
Lord, we recognize that in our own strength and with our own intellect, we cannot truly discover what the scriptures are all about. We pray with the psalmist. I think it says in Psalm 119 somewhere, open my eyes, Lord, that I may see wondrous things in your word. And all God's people said, Amen.